Today on MakersCast, I chat with cartoonist Chris Schweitzer. Hello and welcome to another episode of MakersCast, my excuse to talk to interesting people in the name of marketing. I'm Matt, and I'm joined today by my friend Chris Schweitzer. Hey Matt, thank you so very much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Everything going okay in social isolation? Uh, things are good. There's very little difference in my day-to-day. Um, if anything, I see people more frequently than I did before because my wife and daughter don't leave the house for daily activities. Uh, yeah, that's pretty is, much where I am as well. Yeah, so not too much has changed except for my very infrequent uh, social commitments, you know, choir practice for church and things like that. I no longer have. That, that's been nice. <laughs> So, so when we'd originally talked about this, we talked about me coming up and, you know, doing this in person, but you know, the, the sort of quarantine and, and the state line travel has kind of changed how we're going to do it. Yeah. And to some degree, uh, I try to leave the option open depending on the person, uh, whether they want to do it from home or in my home, but I like to do it at home when possible, just cause it's kind of easier to judge like, okay, when do you talk? When do I talk? When you can see each other yeah. without a lag. Yeah, it makes a difference, I think. It does, but, you know, we must soldier on, and I'd rather talk to you than not. So, uh, to begin, just for as a point of introduction, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to go through your uh, interesting list of past professions that you use in your About the Artist. <laughs> okay. And uh, just run through that quickly, and I might ask a couple questions about a couple of them, if that's all right with you. That is fine. If you have a copy, uh, that would do better than me. I tend to forget, although my, my, my daughter's been asking me. I tell her thing uh, at bedtime, like she's been asking for sort of a, a wind-down post-read talk uh, each night, and a lot of times it's, it's talking about jobs that I've had or classes that I've taken or classes that I've taught, because she's really interested in the idea of college and she's really interested in the idea of uh jobs so so some of these are fresher in my mind than they otherwise <laughs> might be yeah but uh, i've got my copy of uh fix a car on me which is one okay. of the more recent ones <laughs> so as written in the about the artist chris schweitzer has been a college professor a hotel manager movie theater projectionist guard and mental hospital martial arts instructor which is the first one I want to ask about. What <laughs> kind of mar- what kind of martial arts did you do, or uh, do you do if you continue uh, to practice? That I I don't continue to practice. I continue to practice in that I have a punching bag that I work on every day, but that's the extent of it. Um, I I did Chung So Kwan, which is a variation on Taekwondo. I did that from the time I was about eleven until I was about twenty, and so. Uh, the the summer before my senior year of high school, up through my senior year of high school, I was training about five hours a day. I'd get up in the morning. I had we had a barn that I kind of turned into like a Rocky Four gym. I had tires hanging from the rafters and things like that. And then I I uh, once I turned eighteen, I had a, a key to the the studio where where I took and um and so I would go there and and train and and once I turned eighteen, I became an assistant instructor. So I did. Uh, some of the, the kid classes I taught the, uh, a couple of the weapons classes and I was doing it sort of in pursuit of doing the tournament circuit. But once I got up to a certain level, you know, you get to a certain point and then you're facing folks who are, you know, fifth degree black belt, six degree black belts, um, much better than me. And I didn't think I was necessarily going to get any better because I was training all the time and, you know, I'm reasonably smart 
sometimes I am not quick thinking. And when it comes to fighting, you've got to be pretty quick thinking. And I'm not, um, you know, I could use technique and I have a, I'm pretty big, so I had a good reach. Um, but at a certain point that stopped being, uh, that stopped winning me tournaments. And so once that kind of fell into play, I kind of between that and moving to places where I didn't really like the studios, uh, that, that kind of put an end to me practicing regularly. Sure. But apart from uh, the presence of, you know, certainly sparring sessions and tournaments like that, at least from an outside perspective as someone who has never done martial arts but uh, watches a lot of shows in which they are involved, <laughs> it seems like a lot of it is more the practice and bettering oneself as opposed to comparing oneself to others. I, I think that is the ideal, um, but when you're 20, it's hard to look at things through that lens. Um, oh, isn't it? And so for me, it was very much a whether or not this is something that I could or would have interest in pursuing professionally. Like, did I want to sure. open up my own studio at a certain point? Because the, the, the two things you can kind of do with it are either you become a fighter or you become a teacher, yeah, or at least that's the, the, the way that I looked at it. And I love teaching. I love doing the kids' classes, especially. I've always loved teaching whatever it is that I'm working on. But I figure that without my my college town, I didn't really care for there. Theirs was a much more exercise based approach as opposed to a combat based approach. And this was sort of while Taibo was hitting big. And so the the, the options that I had were either uh, doing a lot of ground fighting, which I'm bad at, or doing moving to more aerobic style stuff. And neither one really caught my interest. So it was as much a lack of, of available schools that kind of suited my inclinations as it was a recognition of my shortcomings that kind of led to me uh, slowing down in that. And uh, in terms of the the paths one may take, it sounds very similar to what I have with an English degree, which uh, as opposed to fighter or teacher, it's writer or teacher. <laughs> I think I think a lot of things it's this or teacher. Um, but yeah. I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I had mentioned this and a couple other things, too. Uh, so when I was in, in grad school and we might get to this a little bit later, uh, my mentor was Sean Crystal, who's a, an artist, does a lot of work for Marvel. And, uh, you know, we, we worked together on, you know, lots of school related stuff. Like he helped me uh, a ton of, uh, in all sorts of different ways, but he heard that story and a couple others that were kind of similar to it. And he was like, Chris, you know what this realized this, you know, your, your pattern is. And I was like, what? And he's like, you learn the heck out of something in an attempt to be the best at it. And when you realize you're not going to be the best at it, you quit. And I said, ah, I'm not going to do that with comics. And I've, I've made, I've made lots of peace with the fact that I'm not going to be the best at anything that I do, but I'm going to enjoy it and I'm going to do my best at it. So now that, that what you said about sort of that internalized martial arts ethos, like that's coming into play in my adulthood so far as art goes. Yeah. I think that's an important hurdle for anyone in literally any pursuit to come to is uh, the betterment of self over the competition with others. Yeah, because the thing is, so far as competition with others go, you know, nobody's ever going to be great. Uh, you know, I, I say nobody, statistically nobody. You know, um, mm -hmm. I would love to be a capital G great cartoonist, and I think there's maybe been six of them ever. I'm not going to be one of those guys, and and that's okay. You know, I can enjoy myself. Like, like once I stopped kind of fretting over legacy, it, it made everything a lot more enjoyable. Absolutely. And especially when we uh, when we start talking about 
art as opposed to maybe other more easily quantifiable pursuits, <laughs> when you look at those capital G great people, even they are going to tell you, yeah, but I can't do X like oh, this yeah, person. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of factors with that. Like there are some folks that I think of as truly, you know, truly transcendent cartoonists, truly great cartoonists. But I also have come to terms with the fact that there is a there is a degree of popular acclaim or public accessibility that has to be balanced against that quality. You know, if, if a tree falls in the forest and all that, uh, you know, I've, I've got a couple of books that are my very favorite books and nobody's read them. And so <laughs> how does that translate to that person having an impact on the uh, comic scene or things like that? You know, I mean, they have an impact on me as a reader. It might not necessarily be an, an influence, but it's a, as a reader, I'm, I'm glad for him. But Anyway, I'm, I'm tangenting probably more than you would prefer <laughs> so far as this goes. Yeah, that's why we're here. But yeah, uh, that, I, that's just getting into general questions of mass culture and can something mass consumable be great and all oh, kinds absolutely. of large historical I, sociological questions. Of I kind of, so, so far as that goes, I kind of feel like there is an obligation that it has to be mass cultural to be great. I think that, you know, Moby Dick is only great after it gets a second life as a great work you know does it exist as a great work prior to that i don't know that it does i think we have to balance out the the impact and perception that that people have on a on a work and that can change over time like you know mm -hmm. like with moby dick or like with van gogh or whoever else but you can i think uh but i i do think that that degree of impact that it has and the breadth of impact is an important qualitative factor when it comes to judging the merits of a work. Um, even though, and I say that as somebody who writes, you know, or wants to write books about kids in the 1850s putting on a play, like right. I can think this without practicing it, but I, I do think that it it's a factor that we don't talk about nearly enough so far as judging and discussing art goes. Right. And I, I, we are getting into pretty large ideas here, but I think we're both students of history to some degree. I think that factors into it a lot insofar that pre-early 20th century, mass culture as a concept didn't exist. And greatness yeah. was determined by a fairly you know, statistically small amount of people, the academy, what, uh, mm -hmm. the critic, whatever you want to call them. And then we, when you enter into an era of mass culture where everyone is literate, everyone has a radio, you can all form an opinion on these things, then the more people that it can reach is theoretically a metric for greatness. But now that we've come back around to not only a democracy of consumption, but a democracy of creation, mm -hmm. I think it's a, a middle ground again, because if you can find sort of a, a zenith of well-made work that finds an audience within a niche, that's mm -hmm. its own form of greatness. Yeah, I think you're not wrong in that in that capacity. Yeah, I think that um, here's the thing: you're the first person I've talked to in months. Um, so <laughs> not not counting my uh, my wife and daughter, and you know we're we're not we're we're more discussing day to day stuff. So uh, so these are I, I'm gonna have to process all of the things that you're saying. And, and, and we got heady real out the gate. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, that's really good. Um, uh, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's that's something that I have always tended to look through that lens because I am 
a niche audience. You know, I like historical fiction or I like history or I like this particular, this thing or that thing. And I usually judge the merits of a work both as it fits within a specific genre and as it works as a larger body of art. But no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that you, that's especially important when you deal with subject matter that isn't necessarily going to have a traditionally wider readership, not, not just in the sense of subject matter, but also in the sense of who's telling the story. You know, there can be folks who are reluctant to hear from voices that are not like their own. And then there are folks who are actively seeking out things from voices that are like their own. And I think in both of those, both of those are going to have an effect so far as that goes. And I'm sorry, my mind just wandered and I don't even remember the start of that sentence. Um, (laughs) So apologies if it made no sense. That's good. I would probably (laughs) danced around a point there, (laughs) but uh, before we move on from uh, all of your past interesting jobs, Mm -hmm. because uh, we did tangent a bit, but I do have to ask about speakeasy operator. Oh, well, I, uh, that was a uh, bar that I ran out of my house. We were in a dry County and I had some money left over from summer, uh, that I, you know, I paid, I, I generally speaking would gather up my rent ahead of time for the year. And then whatever was left, I would look at as kind of fun money. I made 25 bucks a week, uh, at the school newspaper. And then I had some other odd jobs around college. And so, but if stuff that I'd save up from factory work or field work or whatever else, I would generally speaking blow before I got back to school. And so this year I I had like 300 bucks and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to make a bar and fully stock it. And so I invited one of my friends, uh, name is last name is Krogan, which is where I stole, I stole his name for one of my book series. We decided that we would build this bar together. And he was my most alcohol familiar friend. You know, I was 21. I thought, well, this will be perfect. And so I, I invited him over and we decided to build this bar. And so we, we built it in my, I, I lived in a, like a one bedroom cottage and it was really close to campus. You know, we built the little shelves and things like that. And we said, well, you know, how, how tall is a bar supposed to be? And we said, well, you're supposed to be able to lean on it. And so we both put our, you know, crocked our arm up and built it at arm crocked up height, which both of us were about six, three. (laughs) And so arm crocked up height, like we were looking at about my armpit. So that bar was about five and a half feet tall. Um, you which, must be this tall to drink. It, it really rendered it completely useless and <laughs> in, in pretty much the, the uh, for everybody. You know, anybody who came up to it was like looking over it with their eyeballs. But I, but basically, we we did some math and figured out per ounce. Uh, erroneously figured out. I lost money with this, um, but figured out per ounce how much each bottle cost, and then I charged at cost, rounded up to twenty five cents. Um, so that basically it was just a, a way for my friends and their friends and things like that to be able to to come over, you know, before a party and, and have a drink or something without breaking the bank, without me going under for it and without me taking advantage of anybody else. And so, you know, the, the cheaper things were 25 cents a, a shot, you know, Maker's Mark was a, like 75 cents a shot, something like that. And um, so we did that. And in theory, my money was to replenish the supply. You know, I had a a jar there, but I would take it out for other stuff. And uh, eventually it all ran short, but it was, 
it ended up getting to where, you know, just anybody who was happening by and, you know, a couple people wanted to drink, I'd, you know, put on my little bartender apron and do it. In, but as a result, I, I didn't have room for a table or anything else in there. Once I built the bar, it took up half the room. Uh, it's a very so college to, problem to have. Yeah, so I had to stand for the entirety of that year when I was eating or doing homework or anything like that, because there, there were obviously no stools tall enough to uh, work in that in that arena. Well, uh, I'd like to leap back a little bit, go a little more uh, biographical, if that's all right with you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, in reference to your martial arting uh, when you were younger, the, the sort of Rocky Four barn gyms. You grew up very <laughs> rural. Yeah, yeah. So uh, rural but worldly is the, the, the way I kind of look at it. So I, uh, I grew up in Louisiana. We were one, we, we weren't particularly swampy, but we were one parish over from uh, where the Cajun population was really heavy. And I lived there until I was 11 and then until, until just after my 11th birthday. And then we moved to Kentucky and lived in a sort of a small uh, tobacco farming town uh, near the Tennessee border. And I have for the entirety of my life and in any, any place I've lived in America has been somewhere in that Southeast. So, uh, as far West as Mississippi and Kentucky, and then basically, uh, Mississippi, Kentucky, Georgia, North Carolina, I don't know if I said Tennessee and Florida. Um, so those are, those are the places that I've lived. So it's all been in this very specific area. Um, the swelter states. Yes, but uh, my my dad, well, both my parents were classical musicians, and so my mom's a violinist, and my dad was an opera singer and a choral composer, and so I grew up around a lot of, uh, and he was also a college professor, so I grew up in a, in a collegiate environment and singing in operas and go, you know, doing, doing all this sort of thing. So that was kind of balanced between the fact that my, my day-to-day activities tended to be jumping from one hay bale to another. And so you, you kind of, I, I feel like I had a really good balance regarding sort of the, the more blue collar aspect of things and the more, I don't, what hooded collars, what do you call the, the academic <laughs> art life? It's not exactly white collar. Uh, cause we're all still poor, but, uh, but it was, yeah, anyway, it was a good, it was a good balance growing up. Um, yeah. I, I think I've got a, it makes it easy to see a lot of sides, um, because I come from a lot of sides, I guess. And that sometimes is helpful when it comes to writing and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I'm from Georgia and lived there my entire life up until moving to Tennessee for college. So I, I <laughs> kind of feel you to some degree though i didn't grow up truly rural uh, quite as much but um yeah i feel like when a lot of people think of that band of states that you mentioned they think of i guess the middle ground good old boy Mm -hmm. more than anything where when you get into i guess that's a phrase that's more of more as a question when, when you get into more truly rural areas i imagine that that lends itself at a certain point to, uh, well, I have to fill my time with something. So yeah. there, there is then that exploration of you know, uh, books and music and lots of other things that you ne- wouldn't necessarily be associated for various reasons. Oh, I think that, that that's, I, I imagine that's a, a big part of things. You know, I, I mean, I was always a big reader and, and a big pretender too. You know, I'd, I'd love to, I'd go out in the woods and, 
you know, I'd go down by the the rivers and things like that. And I would, you know, imagine all sorts of things and play all sorts of things. And, and that carries over very much into my professional life. You know, a lot of the stuff that I do is done through that lens of would this make nine-year-old me happy? And uh, generally speaking, I feel like it would. But, uh, yeah, I think, and, and it's also dependent on where you are. So like the two places where I grew up or the, the, the first place where I grew up, Louisiana, there are parts of Louisiana, I think that are very sort of, you know, good old boy rednecky, but the, the part where I was in was very, um, racially diverse and it was very culturally diverse. And I think that's a thing that goes for a lot of Louisiana is, is sort of like that. And as a result, when I first moved to Kentucky, the town where I moved to was not like that. And there was a lot of antipathy towards that kind of idea of cross culturalism. And mm. a lot of the fights that I would get in were sort of based around either that or somebody flying a rebel flag or things like that from the time I was, you know, 11 or 12 onward just because that was very opposite of what I had grown up with. So I think people think of the South as sort of a monolith, but it, it really, it varies state to state and region to region. And the, the, the town where I am now, I'm only 40, about 40 minutes, about, about maybe 25, 30 miles north of where I spent my teenage years. But the culture is very different. Uh, the, the, the culture between a mining town where I live now and a farming town, which is where I was before is like night and day. It's a lot more of sort of an Appalachian bordering on Midwest mindset here. Whereas sort of where I was before felt more deep South than when I was in Louisiana. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's going to be the difference between landowners and blue collar workers. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, it's, it's kind of funny. The, the, uh, the civil war line ran, exactly halfway between where I live now and where I live then. And you can, you can really see kind of how that plays out even to this day in terms of sort of just the general culture, I think. Yeah. I didn't know when we were going to touch on this, uh, but do you consider yourself Appalachian? I guess so. I mean, I feel like uh, any, any time I, I consider myself anything, I feel like there is a degree of, usurpation of identity like i feel like i'm i i because of influx of media from all around the country like i don't feel like any of us are really anything um i'd consider myself more appalachian than i would consider myself anything else and you know part of that is where i live part of it is the the only consistent family land that that we have and continue to have my grandfather bought a, a lot of land up in the Smokies in Tennessee, pretty close to the, the North Carolina border. And, you know, my, my dad built a cabin up there and we're up there a lot. And, and, you know, we, we maintain it when he passed that, that, you know, care of the, the cabin and, and sort of our, some of our stuff has passed to me and my sister and, you know, my, my uncles and my cousins are up there a lot. And it's anyway, so I feel like that between that and where I live now, like that, that's been the, the sort of central, geographic constant in my life so probably so i don't know what yeah. else i'd call myself <laughs> absolutely but, uh so it's not a necessarily an air area of or people of the country that we often think about how would you describe appalachian culture just in terms of i don't know what it is in terms of uh, what it focuses on or feels like there is there's a, a lot of self-sufficiency is a big part of it 
there's a there's a degree of clannishness um, with a C uh, so far as you know looking at regions and sort of uh, uh, take school spirit and uh, apply it to your relatives and neighbors and it kind of has that thing but a lot of it uh, there's have you ever heard of the I think it's called the key principle of no. settlement so the the idea of this and I forget the uh, the the historian who sort of first coined it, but the idea is that whatever dominant cultural group that ends up taking over, you know, I mean, like every place is a, a constant turnover every couple hundred years of who is running it. But, um, but whoever's running it, the idea is whoever the first people of that group were to arrive and settle that place, that is the dominant culture. Um, mm. And so New England, still the dominant culture is Puritanism. You know, Louisiana, uh, that, that dominant culture is still French expatriates. Uh, Southerners, it's still uh, Barbadian slave lords. Um, and uh, so for Appalachian, it's all Scottish border reavers, you know, folks who basically had or to, um, you know, came from that, that English-Scottish border, had pretty much no institutional support in defense of their property. And so property became movable. You know, you would grow what you needed to survive. You would build houses quickly because you didn't know how long you would be able to stay there. You would convert your assets into movable, movable assets like livestock, like whiskey, like grain, things like that, rather than setting up shop. And you would defend that vehemently without uh, any need for outside intervention. And that's still very much the, the culture. Uh, you know, you get, you hear about the uh, no duty to retreat laws and things along those lines. And that's, that's very much an Appalachian mindset. This idea that, you know, you you don't call the cops. You are responsible for protecting your own property. And there's there's also an, an active distrust of any any kind of authority thing. It's not you know you 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 get some folks who are sort of in that who are pro police or pro national guard or things like that. Like generally speaking, Appalachian. Like I think statistically, we join the military in higher numbers than any other region. But but we don't trust any of them. Um, right. And so the, the assumption is that someone's always trying to screw you. And so you need to prepare yourself against that. And you see, the, and the way that we tend to vote, the way that we tend to support one policy or another, where we fell in the Civil War, things like that, it's almost never in allegiance with something. It's almost always in opposition to something, whatever you feel is most infringing on you and so in the civil war most of appalachia skewed northwards because the idea because we had more proximity to the slave states and they were the ones who were actively diminishing political power for the appalachian people um when you move a little bit later uh that you know they start to align themselves with the south because it is viewed as the northern and the coastal states that are putting into play policies that dictate like how things are done. And so basically Appalachia is against anybody who tells them what to do. Sure. Um, and they'll fight vehemently against that. And I'm not necessarily like that as I get older, uh, when I was younger, 100%, that was, I was an aggressive contrarian and through the influence of my wife, I have come to see the value of, community and the value of working for each other and also 
as especially with Twitter and things like that, uh, it's easier to see the viewpoints of other people and recognize how inaction or a lack of involvement on my part with this or that, uh, which is my inclination. Like I said, I like to hole up, um, uh, that that can actively make life worse for other people. And I don't want to do that. And so that's, so, so between Liz kind of explaining to me why it's important to use crosswalks, uh, in, as a, as a microcosm of larger social back and forth and seeing how other folks do not have that ability to be entirely self-sufficient that I do, you know, and to be aggressive towards authority and whatever else, um, without repercussion, you know, I've never faced that. And, um, you know, it, it's changed my way of looking at things. I think, uh, have you ever read, uh, Eric Powell's hillbilly books? I have not. I've read um, a lot of his goon stuff, but I haven't read Hillbilly. Yeah, I, I've deep. Uh, this does connect. I promise. I've deeply enjoyed uh, <laughs> Hillbilly as this sort of like uh, Appalachian fairy tale Hellboy kind of deal. Okay. Yeah, you're and, selling and, me on it. <laughs> and it's Eric Powell, so obviously it's really pretty. Um, but the reason that connects in my mind is because it is in the like, deep woods of Appalachia and a lot of my yeah. experience or the things that pique my interest of the, uh, that culture are the strangely fairy tale aspects of like the creatures and myth oh, yeah, that came yeah. out of it. And I, as I think about it, it's all it, it does feel very Grim Brothers insofar as don't go out there. Something will get you. And I imagine that's baked into that distrust as well. I think so. I think there's a, there's there's sort of a mix. There's a degree like Appalachian folklore and folk monsters tend to kind of operate either under that that sort of boogeyman aspect where it is a cautionary tale or as sort of hyper absurdity like braggadocio right. um that you kind of see with like logging folklore. It's sort of it's in that same vein where it's you know, you, you get that with, you know, like Davy Crockett biographies and things like that, where it's there's a bragging is it is welcomed sort of culturally provided that it is done with such a degree that nobody can take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So you either if you're if you're bragging or selling yourself, you're either going so far over the top that everybody takes it in jest or you don't do it. And so for for a long time, like the, the don't do it things like I would get furious listening to some branches of hip hop because a lot of it was self aggrandizing in a non humorous way uh, when I was younger. And it would get me so boiled because again, growing up and, and I should, I should also preface this by saying just in general, you know, I, I mentioned getting into fights and things like that. Like where I grew up, fights were a very regular thing. Like everybody got into fights all the time. And I, I, I hear from other folks who are adults who never got into fights. And I was like, there was never a week where I didn't get into a fight, but <laughs> the, the adults who never got into fights and they talk about fights at their school, it's like, and then somebody hit somebody else in the mouth with a fire extinguisher. And we never did stuff like that. You just, you'd scrap until somebody uncled up or walked off or something like that. And that would be the end of it. And so there wasn't that degree of ferocity or permanent damage i think that you you see elsewise i mean like i you know i took some lumps i got some teeth knocked out and things like that but generally on the whole it seemed less terrible but like one of the things that you would do if somebody was like i'm the toughest guy around you'd 
you know, that was immediately an invitation for them to prove it. Um, and so when I would hear, you know, like some gangster stuff and things like that, I, I'd just be like, I just want to punch my speakers because I didn't know how to process that type of type of pumping oneself up without it feeling like a, a challenge. Um, so I, I guess all anyway, that's, uh, that's my thing. Appalachia, uh, violent, but in a kind hearted way, that's probably very <laughs> wrong. Um, so yeah, not necessarily anyway, incorrect, <laughs> but not fully nuanced. <laughs> yes. Um, I, you know, I'm no sociologist. I can only speak to my own experience. So I think that that that's the way that I kind of see stuff. And, and it, but it also, you know, it, it changes and I'm sure there are still some enclaves that are, you know, really remote, but like where, where we were in Tennessee, Del Rio, which is about 20 minutes outside of Newport, uh, which Newport itself, well, now it's a lot bigger, but you know, up until Liz and I were married, you know, the roads weren't paved there. There wasn't anything. They, they recently paved the roads out there and I, I don't know how to process it. Um, uh, I, I, I'm. I always, I drive too fast going around the curves now. Cause you know, I mean, it's deep in there, but you know, there's a, a vegan coffee shop in downtown Newport now. And I don't know how that exists, um, but it does, you know? So I, I feel like there's, I think you're seeing less and less isolation in these areas. And I think that's a good thing. You know I mean? Absolutely. Like, you, you know, it, when you're, when you talk about a loss of cultural identity or things like that, you're, you're, I think fetishizing poverty and you're, you're fetishizing a lack of available resources to that person to reach the outside world. And so, you know, my dad got a, got a landline put, was finally able to get a landline put in maybe 2009 ish. Wow. I was Um, waiting to predict what year and I did not expect 2000 to enter. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, so I mean like there were, it, it was hard getting, you know, getting stuff up there, but now, you know, folks need the internet. They need reliable roads that aren't going to tear their cars up. You know, they need this sort of thing. And so I think it's, I, I think these are wonderful things, but it definitely does change the aesthetic. It changes the dynamic, you know, it changes things, but change isn't necessarily bad. It's just change. And even if the change is from, uh, even if it isn't, as you said, the fetishization of poverty or things of that nature, it, also isn't bad to get out of homogeneity yeah that's absolutely true and i think i think that it can be really um i think it can be really difficult for there can be people in that community who suffer because even though they're in it there is a lack of familiarity with those people just because they're the only example or something i don't know um (laughs) but yeah it was it was uh if you ever saw there was that show Christie with the girl from life goes on. It's probably before your time. Um, it was, it was, it was very Dr. Quinn esque, but, uh, Christie's mission, um, was the book. Okay. I remember reading that book book, actually. Okay. Well that, that, that mission was one plot over from our property. Oh, um, if that gives you a sense of where, where we are out there, but yeah, anyway, yeah, I've been rambling about Appalachia too long. We can give it as something else if you want. Indeed. I was very much enjoying that, but we should probably Oh, get no, no, that's fine. And I'm, I'm, I, I hate to be inorganic with the subject shifts, but yeah. <laughs> I am supposed to steer the, the ship as directed. <laughs> but um, so just thinking about all of, 
you know, your the strange twists and turns uh, that you have taken with like choosing what to uh, attempt to master and then try something else. Where did art begin in, in that timeline? I mean, that it, it was always there. I mean, I, I drew from the time I was, you know, able to hold anything. Um, but it really cemented itself when I was 25. And I, I say that despite the fact that I ended up majoring in graphic design, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do exactly. But uh, when I was 25, I, um, right around my 25th birthday, I was spending a lot of time at a desk at a hotel that we were running. And so I was looking online. I stumbled across web comics. From there, I stumbled across a message board for com- web comics. And so it was a lot of folks who were relatively early on. It was a bunch of the flight people. And then it was like Mike Mayhack and Raina Teltermeyer and Joey Weiser and a few of those other folks. And, and so I saw some of theirs and I started drawing and they were, you know, really welcoming to me and really supportive of it. And that, that really quickly snowballed into what I decided that I wanted to do within a, within a couple of months. I was doing it a lot and then realizing that that was the direction that I wanted to go. So what kind of things were you doing in the, the early webcomic days? Um, I was doing short, like slice of life stuff. Um, uh, I think my three, my first thing was like a six page comic about shaving my beard. Mm. Um, I did a, a comic about getting heckled by kids when we were playing kickball in college. Uh, and how do you, and, and this was sort of specifically going to that Appalachian thing. Like what, you know, it's like that community episode with those, the, those terrible teenagers. It's like, what do you do when people younger than you are courting a fight, but you can clearly destroy them and you're technically an adult. Like, how do you balance that? Like I never had to deal with that before. So I did a comic about that. Then some things about me and Liz, uh, just little like James Kachaka style style stuff. And it, it was mostly just that kind of thing. And I just post them up as I finished them. And I was, so I was at the time, you know, the only, the only stuff I'd read was uh, I'd read a bunch of comic strips and I'd read, uh, Craig Thompson's blankets and his travel journal, black sad and bone. And that was pretty much it. And so I didn't really have much of a basis from which to work, but so comic strips were by and large, my primary influence. I'd read a lot of those growing up. We had all the Calvin Hobbes books and peanuts books and things like that in the house. And so those were a really big influence. Foxtrot was the, probably the biggest influence and continues to be the biggest influence on my pacing and the, the dialogue rhythm and that sort of thing. Interesting. So at what point does uh, it go from, it, it was a very quick uh, snowballing into you taking on doing comics and web comics. At what point did that lead to sequential art as a, a post-grad pursuit? Well, I did. Um, so I realized pretty quick that I wanted to do that. And so once I realized that I talked to my wife and, and we're like, we're sick of running this hotel. Um, we want to do something else. So we so you ran uh, a hotel with Liz. I ran a hotel with Liz. I started out, I, I started working there. I, I wasn't running it. I, I don't even know what my title was when I first came down. I had, I had thought I was going to be a lawyer for a little while. And so I moved to North Carolina for a summer and worked at a law firm, made me decide that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, but the partners at that law firm decided to buy a bed and breakfast in Natchez, Mississippi. And so I didn't know what I was going to do out of college. And, uh, my dad had asked me at some point, he was coming up 
they lived about an hour away, which at the time was an insurmountable distance. Like I never went home after my freshman year, you know, um, but, and that's probably part of why he did this. So he took a couple teaching classes on, on uh, Fridays, my last semester of college at my school so that we could have breakfast every week and he could justify the taking of the trip. So I think he just taught some voice classes so they didn't require any prep. So he'd come up and we'd go to Cracker Barrel and we'd, you know, I'd get Uncle Herschel's country breakfast and, and, uh, we would, you know, we'd just chat about things and it was, it was great. It was really nice. And, um, one time he said, well, Chris, what are you going to do when you're done with school? And I said, well, I don't know. I've been thinking about this. He's like, no, I mean like, what are you going to do for a job? Like, you know, school ends on the May 23rd. What are you doing? May 24th. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And we would, we would get into fights all through college because I'd, I'd, you know, anytime I'd come home and at about halfway through, I stopped coming home, but, uh, because I would come home for spring break. And if I didn't have like two different factory or farm jobs lined up, he would be furious with me. And so, uh, so anytime I wasn't in school, I was working. So anyway, so, so I thought, well, you know, he's, he's right. I need to have something. And so when the, uh, when I got asked about, whether I'd be interested in running a hotel. And at this point, Liz and I were engaged. And so they said, would you and Liz want to do this? I said, Hey Liz, you want to run a hotel? And she said, sure. Although they didn't say a hotel, they said a bed and breakfast, which is a very different kettle of fish. You know, you assume you show up in the morning and that people, you know, or that, you know, you, you fix people breakfast, you give people their room keys and that's the extent of it. It wasn't a bed and breakfast, which I found out when I got down there the night of graduation. So I did walk for graduation, got in the car, drove 10 hours and started that night. So we, we lived there. We had a, we had a, we lived in one of the rooms. Um, it had a, had a little suite there, but it, it wasn't a bed and breakfast. It was a full blown hotel. I mean, it wasn't a huge hotel, but it it had 17 rooms and a restaurant that we were also in charge of running. Oh um, and, uh, yeah, I know. I'm like, this is the, uh, yeah, it was absurd. Um, so anyway, so we, we got down and we're, we're doing that and did that for about two years. I was down there and then we, we got married like two or three months later and we went on our honeymoon and then we came back and she started working too. And she was much smarter at it than me. She's smarter at everything than me. So, <laughs> which is very lucky for me, less so for her, but, um, but I love her a lot. So I guess that balances things out. We do what we can. Yeah. And so, um, so anyway, so we, we decided we didn't want to be doing that anymore. And so I knew at that point that I wanted to do, comics and i also had known from the time that i was a kid that whatever i wanted to do i wanted to teach it at the college level because my dad had been a college professor i loved getting to see like the impact that he had on his students lives and the communities that were there and the ability to have regular interaction with folks from a lot of different disciplines and i i really liked it and so i i knew that i wanted to do that and i just enjoyed teaching which i knew from doing the martial arts stuff so I looked to see if there was a, if you could get a terminal degree in comics and you could, and there were a couple of places at the time. Now there are like five at the time there was just uh, Minneapolis college of art and design and Savannah college of art and design. And so we looked at the two and I'd called them and talked to people in either admissions or the department. And it seemed as though Minneapolis was a little more self-directed um and scad was a little more regimented and um, my thought was i don't know what i'm doing i can't self-direct without 
a background in this. And so I decided that SCAD was the way to go. And so I told Liz that I decided this. We were visiting my sister in Florida when, when I were, was on these calls. And so we were driving back, and I told Liz that I was pretty sure that SCAD was the way I wanted to go. And she was really horrified because uh, we had just moved from an antebellum tourist town in Natchez, Mississippi, whose whole industry is tourism. And I was talking about moving to Savannah, which is an antebellum tourist town. And she was really not looking forward to having to work in a hotel again. And I said, well, I don't you know, I feel like that's where we need to be. And, and so as we were talking about this, we were going up 75 where it was about to merge with 85. And we saw them putting up the SCAD Atlanta sign on the side of the building. And so we like veered off the exit and like went up there and was like, Hey, is this, is this the same SCAD? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, is this a, can you take the same classes? And they said, yeah. And we said, well, there you go. And so we decided that we were going to building every time I go see my parents. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we, d- we decided that, uh, this was a kind of a sign like in the, both the metaphorical and literal sense. And, you know, we were kind of daunted by the idea of moving to a big city because none of us had ever lived in a big city. You know, we were very small towny people. You know, and each place we had moved had gotten increasingly small. So it was a, it was going to be a, a pretty big departure. Anyway, so we were like, well, what would we do for jobs and things like that? And that same night, a friend of Liz from college, her husband had started a, uh, well, he wasn't starting. He was the American branch of a Viennese company. And they, they were calling to offer Liz a job. They thought she'd be a good fit for what they were doing so she was in that one of the upper floors of that i call i i call it the the double queen building um you know the the building in atlanta with two tops i think so yeah maybe anyway it's it's pretty um (laughs) so that they're like you'd have to move to atlanta and she said okay that's fine um so within a day like our whole plan was kind of made um uh, that was contingent of course on me being able to get in so I was like, I have zero comics stuff. You know, I have like four minis that I've made and a few strips because I have no, you know, no background in this really. So we decided that I was going to take the, the rest of the year, well, until till that fall to put together a portfolio. And so we were moving out of the hotel. So we moved back up to where my parents lived and they had an apartment over their garage. So they said that we could live there for a few months. And so we, we, we went and moved to there and I started, Liz started working for my dad. Um, his publishing company did music choral publishing and I started substitute teaching. And so I did that for, I guess about a month or so. And then I got asked by the principal of one of the schools if I would uh, become a full-time teacher and take over for a teacher who had the the story I heard was had a had a breakdown and so she had left and that meant there was no teacher so I so Kentucky has a thing where you can be a teacher for up to a year without a teacher certification specifically for these arenas the idea being in theory that you get your teacher certification during that period but I knew that I was going to do for grad school. So I became a sixth grade social studies teacher and had A, no idea what I was doing and B, nobody told me what I was doing. I had no curriculum. I had no anything. Like I think I I said, well, what do you teach them? And they said, well, they do state history. They do Kentucky history this year. And I said, are there any resources for that? And they said, nope. So 
I, you know, found what I could um, and did Kentucky history. And then I, once we exhausted what I was able to find on my own, I did sort of this day in history stuff. So each day I would do a different lecture about something that had happened in history on March the 2nd, on March the 3rd. And we would use that to talk about this or that thing. So I had about 120 kids uh, over six classes I really enjoyed it, but it was also very taxing because I felt anytime students didn't do well on a test, I felt and continue to feel that that was because I did not make that information compelling enough for them to retain. And that was a big burden to carry. Oh, absolutely. Um, and when you aren't working from a textbook or a curriculum, you're having to <laughs> do literally all of the work to make that happen. Yeah. And at the time I didn't really, I, I think I would do a much better job of it now, but I didn't, I didn't know how to, how to do resources, research. I didn't know how to do class prep. I didn't know how to do that stuff. So I was, I was really winging it. And it, you know, most of the kids retained a lot of stuff and it, like 10 years later, a kid came to a book signing, you know, at this point, you know, much older, maybe late, more than 10 years. And he said, he, I, you know, at the time I was clean shaven or something. He's like, Hey, are you a Norman now? And I was like, I- I'm sorry. And he's like, you know, cause you used to have a beard and now you shaved it off. Like the Vikings did. You, you taught us that. And I was like, well, that just made my, made my life, uh, wow. that, that you remembered, you know, the, uh, the Northmen becoming Normans or whatever, you know, uh, anyway, so I was, but you know, it was what it was. And so I, so I did that. And then when the, when the school year ended, you know, I, I, I'd applied to SCAD and I'd, I checked in regularly, but I hadn't heard anything. And so when the school year ended, we were like, well, we've got to just go ahead and move down to Atlanta because Liz can start her job and, and I'll just work on comics in the interim and hope that I get into grad school. And so we, we found a spot about a mile from the school. And so just down the same street, we were on that main peach tree road. But anyway, I, I did get in and I got, an okay scholarship, you know, it helped. Um, and so I started, uh, going there, um, that fall and moving to Atlanta, you know, we had, you know, comic shops and we had the, the, the libraries. And so I was reading every graphic novel that I could find every single one. So like any graphic novels that the Atlanta public library system had in 2006, I read, because I I just I was so on fire for it and I wanted to learn everything and consume everything and then I did much of the same once I got to SCAD and they had their libraries um, and so that's that's sort of how I started doing that there and when I started there were just three grad students so it was a really small thing and there was a one to one student professor ratio which was wow. great so it was me and Wook um, Jin Clark uh, Justin Wagner. And he, he does comics and stuff as well, in addition to animation. But it was a it was a great program while we were there. And I loved it, and I learned a ton, and I taught myself a ton. And I, you know, worked between class and the rest of it. I was, you know, doing 100-plus hours a week every week and continued to do that for a, a long time. I don't do that anymore. But, uh, but I was just, there was so much that I wanted to do and so much that I wanted to learn. So every conceivable thing that I could go to. If there was an artist workshop in town, if there was a cartoonist giving a talk somewhere, like I was there and I'd drive however far, like I drove to Gainesville, Florida once. Um, cause Jeff Smith and Tom Hart were doing a talk. I did. I went to Savannah quite a few times. 
I, I was just, I was trying to take in as much as I possibly could and just completely immerse myself in it. And I, I feel like it, it was definitely worthwhile for me to do so. Now, you mentioned before that uh, it was a SCAD mentor who pointed out your uh, pattern of like really investing yourself in something and then trying something else. Yeah. Do you think the fact that, that that pattern was pointed out to you at that time bolstered you into comics in any way? Like so trying to break I, that pattern in that moment? I don't think so. I mean, it being articulated worried me a little bit because then I was like, oh, is that something that I need to fret over? But the thing is, I love comics so much. And, and at that point, you know, I, I was young and impatient with everything else. And by the time I was doing comics... I had mellowed enough that I could recognize that anything that one endeavors to do is a lifelong pursuit if they want to do it well. And so that, I think, mitigated that fretting over, am I going to be good enough, fast enough for it to matter? But I also, you know, there were there were some things early on that really... I think allowed me to get stick to itness. I had a lot of peer approbation, which was really nice um, early on. And my first book got some award nominations and that nobody's first book is great, but everybody thinks their first book is great. And, you know, I was no exception. I, you know, I, you kind of dance that balance between pure optimism and pure pessimism. This is terrible. Nobody's ever going to want to see it or, this is the best book in the world and everybody's going to want to give me a Pulitzer, you know, and you're kind of, you're yeah, with each successive page, you're seesawing back and forth with that. And so like getting an Eisner nod for that first one. And, uh, there, there were a couple other things that were good, but Eisner was the big one. And, uh, those I think made it to where if I was going to have any doubts, feeling like I was on the right path, Mm-hmm. And that things were going according to some internal plan, even even if it was an unarticulated plan. I think that that was a huge thing for carrying me through. Yeah. And comics being so welcoming and things like that, like the people, part of it was people that I met at shows, you know, um, like J.P. Cooper and Alec Longstrath and people like that would be really, really friendly when I'd meet them. And then they would introduce me to everybody else. And then pretty soon I'd know everybody and I'd feel less... You know, you go to a show you've never been to before. You don't know anybody. It's a very daunting prospect. It's like starting a new day of school. So so people being nice was a huge part of it. And then also we had a lot of visiting professors and editors and things like that at the school uh, or visiting uh, guests. I think Sean would bring in a lot of guests. And that was huge because then that gave me the opportunity to meet folks who were not in my general league so far as where you are at your career at a given point goes. And that sort of extended my, my social window considerably. Um, and all of those things kind of compounded, made it to where I, I like to think that I wouldn't have given up on comics regardless of obstacle, but I faced very few obstacles. And so that made it a lot easier. My first book that I pitched got picked up. I wanted a teaching job. I got a teaching job. I, I hope that first book would get some recognition. It got some recognition, like all the things that I was wanting to happen happened. Mm -hmm. It makes it really easy to stick with something when that goes that way. Yeah, but it's obviously uh, a lot more likely that those things that you want will happen when you obviously put the work in to make them happen. I mean, I did, but it's, but it's still, you know, I mean, there's a degree of luck involved. Oh, absolutely. Degree of, and timing and everything like that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I was really lucky. I, I sometimes think, oh, if I had started a few years earlier, I could have done this. But 
I was really lucky that I, I came in at a time when graphic novels were but not so hot that there were a bunch of people doing them that were better than me. Yeah, it was a um, break-in moment. It was a really it was a it was an ideal break-in moment. Like there were a bunch of peers that I was close to, most of whom were in sort of that southeastern contingent. So you you know, I, Joey Weiser was down there, JP was down there, Eleanor Davis, Drew Wang, just a lot of people sort of in that area um you know kevin burkhalter i mentioned uh hunter clark uh just a ton of people doing like really great work Uh, i think of it as the the fluke crowd a lot of the people who were at fluke patrick dean of course um and so everybody was kind of in that same place that i was that i was friends with like everybody had done minis in the case of drew and eleanor they had done some gorgeous some of the best minis ever made but pretty much nobody had done a book book yet I was, I think, one of the first people to get a book out, even though everybody was working on them, just because I was working, A, around the clock, and B, I worked pretty fast. And so I I think I was the last to start and the first to finish, kind of. And I I probably wasn't the first, but it was, but it made it to where I kind of had that, that's where that degree of peer approbation came in. Like, I, I had a book, and it was done, and it wasn't terrible, and so... So it made me real in the eyes of, uh, you know, a lot of my, my friends, I think. And, but it, it was, it was an ideal time to come in. It was an ideal time to get recognition, you know, a few years later and anything I would have done would have been one sort of okay thing among tons of great things. And so I, I really lucked out with the timing because there were, there were just fewer books out there and there were fewer all ages books. Um, First, second had just launched, but they were mostly doing French carryover stuff that wasn't really grabbing as much attention as the quality of the work merited. So it, it just the, there wasn't nearly as much competition for that audience as you would see in later years. Yeah, uh, I apologize if I insinuated that you would give up. Just wanted to tie it back around thematically. No, no. That, I mean, it's a it's a very good it's a very good point, and I think that there is there is very much the chance that I would give up if things hadn't gone well. And I hadn't really thought about that before today because that, that was a big part of it. You know, I mean, I do love comics and there are so many things that you can do with comics and I do feel like you can keep doing comics forever and keep learning things and getting better. But all of the things that I quit, I quit because not necessarily because I wasn't the best, but because I didn't seem to be getting any forward traction with them. Whether that was music, whether it was martial arts, whether it was whatever. It just, it seemed like I was kind of stalling out. And so later, if I stalled out, it was okay because I'd already laid these foundations. And at that point I was committed when it came to comics. But, um, but those early successes, I think were absolutely instrumental to me sticking with it. Well, I and many other people are very glad you did. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. But yeah, uh, in terms of uh, the sort of welcoming nature of the comic creator community, that, that's something I think a lot of us have noticed is that the reason that I want to make stuff and tell stories, even though like I'm not a visual artist, I don't make comics certainly not on my own, is because I grew up going to conventions and just living in Artist Alley for a weekend at a time and seeing these people who, like, made something and wanted to share it so openly. And as soon as you mentioned to them, yeah, I want to do something, they said, yeah, be right here next to me next year. There, It was yeah. in no way a competitive atmosphere. That's the thing that I really love, and I think there's a little bit of a difference sometimes when oh, it absolutely. comes to mainstream-specific like Marvel DC people mm. versus 
uh, folks who are doing creator own, and that's changing a lot. Hmm. Um, I think that's more pronounced or was more pronounced about 15 years back when there was active competition for specific books and there were only so many books being put out. But I, I think that by and large, that's really rare. And I was going to say, most people don't, don't look at anything as competition. You know, your, your book is different than my book. They're not, they're not in opposition to each other. Yeah. So talking about a first book, would that be first Krogan? Yeah, that was the first Krogan, which was originally done in black and white. Exactly. I, I assume that most people listening are familiar with particularly Krogan because it's your work that's been around the longest. But where did this idea of this enormous branching family tree of, of the Krogans who like, touched on every like cool sector of history, where, where did that come from? It stemmed from... Um a thing that I had read about Arthur Conan Doyle be when I was a kid wanting to kill off Sherlock Holmes because he, he felt like he had to keep doing it because it was popular, but, uh, and it paid the money and he liked to spend money, but he didn't, he wanted to do all these different genres. He wanted to do like historical romances and things like that. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I was trying to build in a conceit in which I could do something and should it, prove popular i would be able to continually do it while constantly reinventing it and never getting tired of the subject matter Mm. and i tend to flit from thing to thing in terms of what i want to be drawing and what i want to be making like right now i'm on a fantasy kick for kind of the first time ever i've never Mm. been a big fantasy buff but i was doing some prep for a big Christmas project that I'm doing with a pal of mine, Benito Serino. And there's a lot of uh, fantasy elements that are coming into play with that. And that kind of got me excited about it. And then anyway, so I started watching more stuff and reading more stuff and drawing more stuff. But, you know, there will be periods where all I want to read about is fur trappers of the 1820s or the Seminole War or uh, Roman Britain or things like that. And so I will read and watch nothing but that stuff for about two months and then I'll move on to something else. And so finding avenues through which to translate that into actual things that both people can read or see and that can pay bills and things like that uh, is important. And so Krogan was kind of a conceit in which I could do that. I could, I could allow myself these research indulgences and these immersion indulgences and give myself an avenue through which to to translate that to comics. Mm. Yeah, I, I didn't want to focus on Krogan for too long, as I know, because it's your work that's been around the longest. You've talked about it almost certainly the most. But uh, just for any listeners who may not be familiar, there were three Krogan books in total. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then a few short stories that were published in various anthologies or free comic book days and things like that. And in theory, there will be more. Um, We were going to do more maybe three years ago, something like that. Hmm. We had, we had talked out a plan where that we thought would work for output and where I would get a page rate against advances that I, you know, was, was not a lot, but was going to make it feasible for me to pursue this on top of other projects. And I, I did about half of, the next book and then i was told that they weren't going to be able to do that page rate and that Mm. they weren't going to do it that output that they wanted to keep doing it book style and it wasn't something that i felt like i could do and so that kind of put the kibosh on that so that that fourth book is probably at this point never going to be finished 
And that being the case, I may put out what I have thus far for it. I, I, you know, I might do that because why not? Uh, And so, but what I would like to do eventually with the Krogan stuff, if I could, is switch to doing kind of 16 page short stories, do them as sort of prestige minis. Mm. And that would allow me those two months of research of some time period or another. And then, you know, a 16 to 20 something page story, you know, sort of Corto Maltese style. And then, you know, could collect those into books every once in a while or something along those lines. And I just haven't done that yet, but it's something I might do going forward. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you going into that because I know uh, the when's the next Krogan seems to be the question that always crops up in your comments. Yeah, and it's something where, and it's also, it, it's sort of tricky because there's been so much space between the last one. Like the last Krogan book I did that came out in 2012, which is eight years ago, which is a long time. That was the and black and white Krogan's loyalty? That was the black and white Krogan's loyalty. And yeah. so there are going to be so many tonal and stylistic differences between that one and this one that it almost feels like an entirely different animal. I think mm-hmm. had it been steadily progressing, then you could just look at it like you look at Tintin and the land of the Soviets or something and be like, Oh, okay, this is a different thing, but it became this thing here. It's kind of a different thing. And then it's a very different thing. And so that, that aspect of it to some degree gives me pause just from a publishing standpoint. Is it something that, you put out, do you allow those older books to be, are they curios? Are they actively part of the series? You know, it's a different, it's tricky. It's tricky to balance. Yeah. It's the eternal franchise problem. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, jumping ahead a little bit. So you jumped from uh, Krogan and then the, there were some other books in between like the, the sketchbook and the, oh, is it 555 character? Yeah, the 555 character drawings. Yeah. Uh, was the next sort of... I'm real creative with my titles. <laughs> was the next sort of uh, major book that you were both writer and artist on uh, the Creep series? Yeah, so that that's something that I started uh, shortly after I finished teaching. So I, I stopped teaching after five years. I, I taught full-time and realized at a certain point that my eventual plans did not entertain teaching that once my where do i want to be in a few years uh being a teacher wasn't one of them and once i realized that i thought well if i don't want to be a teacher in a few years then why do i need to be a teacher now so uh, i didn't quit comics but i did quit teaching and uh and it was just it, it had gotten to the point where my output wasn't what i needed it to be and it was in trying to strategize how to make that output what i wanted it to be that i realized that teaching was while i had loved it and enjoyed it the dynamics at the school were starting to change. Um, class sizes were starting to change. Teacher expectations were starting to change. There was a lot more, as the school grew, there, there, there was a lot more administrative stuff involved and less per student time available to me. And I, I just didn't think that I was going to do as good a job as I had done previously. And so I stopped doing that and I thought, well, we've got no income. My wife had stopped working once our daughter was born. And so we, we sold our house. Um, we had bought a house while we were in Atlanta. And so we had a little bit of a profit from that. And that would hold us over for about two months. And I thought, well, I better get a book deal in two months that will pay all our bills because otherwise we're in trouble. And luckily I did. Uh, and that was the creeps. And so... So it was a middle reader horror mystery series. So sort of in that 
in my mind, less, less silly. I don't, I, I like for things to kind of be funny, but not silly. Mm. Whether or not I succeed in that, uh, who knows? I might be too silly, but, um, I wanted to do sort of like Wes Anderson does Scooby-Doo was kind of my attempt. Uh, and I, you know, looking at it through that lens, you're probably like, Oh, this is a miserable failure, but I enjoyed (laughs) doing it. And, uh, and it was, it was fun. It got no readership whatsoever. And had this been my first book, this would have been a a real killer because it was, um, it was sort of the exact opposite of everything that happened before. You know, there were a lot of other good books that were out and the reason it had gotten a, a bidding war between three of the, you know, the, the, the more prominent, kid graphic novel publishers and i ended up going with abram amulet who did diary of a wimpy kid and oh, wow. origami yoda and stuff because for for two reasons one the the editor who i had worked with better than any other and who i just think the world of she's an absolute genius was carol burrell and she was the senior editor there um and was the acquiring editor for this book or this series i should say and I'd worked with her when she was at Learner's Graphic Universe imprint. I thought she was great and continue to think that she's great. So anyway, so I was going to, so I thought one, Carol's there and I know that Carol's great. So that immediately, I know it's going to be a good working relationship. And two, they had the most comprehensive marketing plan. Like they sent it with their offer. And then I asked to see the other places offers and they were kind of the same standard thing that you get with any publisher that you're doing. But with, with Abrams, they were doing all these different things and they had all these plans that were very specific to the book. And I was incredibly excited about it. So I start working on the book and about halfway through Carol is let go from her position as senior editor. Mm. And I'm told that even though she's the acquiring editor, that that's not going to affect the degree of attention or whatever that the, the publisher is going to put on the book, which is nice, but never really true. Um, and I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody makes their best effort, but you know, the person who brings in the book is usually the one who's the most invested in it. And the other thing is that both, they had two marketing people and both of them quit about maybe three months before the book came out, six months before the book came out. And they didn't replace them until three months after it came out. So when the first book of the series came out, there was nothing being done. The the guy who was in charge of sales, I think did his best to do marketing on top of his already pretty stacked plate, but none of the stuff that was in the initial marketing plan was done. There was, there, it, you know, it came out to crickets. It got a, a really nice review in Kirkus and that was it. That first book didn't sell. So nobody, no, no stories about the second book. And then the third book just died on the vine. So that was really disheartening because more than any other thing, more than the Krogan books, like I really, I could have done those creeps books forever. Um, I really liked the characters. I really, I loved the, the concept. I was figuring it out and I felt like I was really getting a handle on it. And I thought the second book I actually wrote after the, the third book is the first book that I wrote. And then they decided to put it off until it was because they didn't want it to be too seasonal because there were jack-o'-lanterns in it. <laughs> And so the second book was the last one that I did and I felt like it was the strongest. I still feel like it's the strongest thing I've ever done. And I felt for sure that the fourth book was going to be even stronger and go on because I was learning things with this book that I wouldn't have to relearn with each new series the way that you do, but it wasn't to be. So I do that. That's my biggest professional regret is that I had had some friends with one publisher who had done incredibly well, but had complained about some of the editorial 
this and that. And I was like, I don't want editors telling me what to do. I'm mm-hmm. going to go with this. So that was, that was a factor and I should have not made that decision. So, but you know, you live and learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it yeah. Was the, so was the, I missed the creeps. That was fun. So was the fourth creeps book plotted at all or was any pre no, loosely? I had, I had a, I had a list of things that I was going to do. I think the fourth one was going to be, that there were centaur wizards that had disguised themselves as cowboys by putting fake arms uh, or fake legs on themselves and fake horse head in the front. Um, And they ran a dude ranch and they were trying to get a number of like kid souls so that they could continue to be immortal. And the creeps were, so it was cowboy centaurs at a dude ranch. Um, And then there were, uh, there, there were a bunch. There was a, this was going to be my memento one that was going to be really, it was going to be a nightmare logistically to put together. And I was so looking forward to the challenge, which was that the shy editor of the school website paper gets a cursed smartphone. And if she makes edits to the school paper from that phone, everybody's memories change to reflect what she's edited. Oh. So she makes herself the most popular girl in school and then things start going haywire and the creeps try to, unravel it but she realizes this and makes it to where they never became friends and so they have to put this stuff together anyway it was going to be really fun and trying to figure out all the puzzling bits of it but but eh, there were there were a few mostly what i learned with the trolls one which was that that last one that i did was that i didn't want to write them anymore like i wasn't going to outline them i was going to have the bare concept and then i was just going to make it up as i went along yeah. and the storytelling was so much stronger when i did that do it um, yeah. <laughs> well, it is. There's a lot more quiet moments. There's a lot more personal moments and the relationships feel a lot more real because they're not real dictated by plot mechanism. They're real dictated by how the characters are going to interact in these situations. And I, I really like that. But for that to really, at least for me to be able to do that, I need to already know those characters mm-hmm. to some degree. Like the, when I'm first starting out, I, I tend to be hung up on the mechanics of the story. And so the fourth book is an ideal time to explore that kind of thing. And so no, no fourth books for me someday, someday, maybe. <laughs> well, in terms of, you know, skirting plot mechanism for just na- more natural pacing, that, that's a push pull. I yeah. feel in myself, I feel like one, even though you can be told like there's, you know, the three act structure or the, this is how Hollywood screenplays are written or what have you, all these different methods it feels like the best way is just to absorb stories and just have it be part of your DNA to the point that when it comes back out of you, it's natural. Absolutely. I, I agree. And now I, I got really into analyzing and quantifying story structure and act stuff because of my, my role as a teacher. I taught the, the writing classes and the narrative class, and I felt I had felt very short shrifted is that the term um by some of my writing classes in that they did not delve into it at all so we we went hard like we went into aristotle we went into horace we you know we we looked at kant and we you know we we did all the 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 literary theory stuff we delved into act structure we delved into genre study like we did all sorts of stuff and I feel like learning that stuff and knowing it is really important. Mm -hmm. I think writing to it is going to suck the joy and the energy out of your thing. So it's, it's sort of one of those things where like writing needs to be like jazz and that you learn all of the piano stuff you got to learn. And then you can sit down and do whatever 
stuff you want because you understand those fundamentals that are there. And I feel like story to me is is helpful with that if you're working towards narrative. If if narrative and story is less your concern than the craft of language or something like that, then that, you know, that's a different thing. It's different people have different artistic priorities. But story I don't know if story's a priority for me or not. I'm still I want it to be, but the thing is most of my favorite things are not my favorite things because of the narrative. They're my favorite thing because of the execution of that narrative. Mm. And so as a result of that, I, you know, I put as much emphasis into craft as I can and try to make each moment enjoyable. And if the story falls apart, uh, it might not merit a reread, but you might've enjoyed the, uh, the act of going through it. So anyway, so I'm sort of figuring all that out. Sure. Yeah. And will be when I'm 80, if I make it to 80. Yeah. The, the, the idea of enjoying the process as opposed to the end goal or product, whether you're consuming or creating for me has been a big sticking point in my mind recently of like, don't think too much about whether the thing that I'm watching will be great when it's done. Like, are you enjoying it in yeah. the moment? And the same thing goes for when I'm writing. Like, the act of writing is more important than whether it's good yeah. if I, when I stop. Well, and that's, and, and so far as the, the consumptive aspect of it, like, that's something where I will wait oftentimes for a show to end and then ask people who watched it whether or not it sticks the landing because while, yes, you can derive a lot of enjoyment from a show that doesn't, you know, wrap up neatly. It can also be very disheartening and oh, frustrating. Absolutely. And so, but you know, there are parts of game of Thrones that I'm really glad I watched, even though the landing was disastrous. And there are other shows sort of in that same vein, you know, that I, you know, I watched the first 32 seasons of supernatural and I don't really watch it anymore. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I enjoyed it while I watched it. But I think sometimes there there are ones like Watchmen. I didn't watch Watchmen until after it was done. And then I was like, hey, how was that? And everybody was like, it was great. And then that gave me the confidence to know that it's not going to go off the rails. Mm-hmm. You God know? bless the um, streaming era. Yeah. <laughs> it makes things a lot easier. Yeah. In the, in, the, in the writing aspect of it, like I haven't done, you know, I, I gripe about this. I haven't done a fiction narrative in that I've, that I've seen through to completion, gosh, since like 2013. Mm. No, that can't be right. 2015? Probably 2015. How do I make... How, how do we have a house? I guess... Well, I mean, I, I did a couple other books, but even so... Anyway, I, I miss I miss writing fiction, and I want to do that again. Oh, because I've been doing art for other things, so um, forgot about that. So after Creeps, would the next book have been Fix a Car? Uh, yeah, next book was Fix a Car, I think. So, so how did you, uh, was that a process, uh, that was first, second, obviously, was that a process of you saying, hey, I want to do a book about this, or you were courted for a maker's book? Sort of. I They were doing uh, the science comics, and I knew some folks that were doing those. And so I had put together a pitch for a fiction book that I really wanted to do. And at the time, I really wanted to do it with first, second. And so I put together a pitch and I gave it to my agent and I was like, I only want to do this with first second. And he's like, what are you, an idiot? Let me shop it around. And I was like, no, first second <laughs> or nothing. And he's like, it's going to be nothing. And I was like, okay. So send it to first second. I've been working on it for a while and I was really happy with it. I'm still really happy with it. And they d- uh, declined to do it for a couple of reasons, both of which are sound. And, and But I was talking to Calista Brill, who's the senior editor over there, and she... And she was like, are there any science 
comics that you want to do because we do want to work with you just not on this thing that won't sell and i said well do you have a like a science of how cars work because you know i could do that like because basically all of my science things were history of how the science was learned and that's not what they want and she was like no somebody else is already doing cars and i said well that's that's the only thing close to science that i can swing and so not too long after that they contacted me and said look we're, we're putting together this maker line and we were thinking car maintenance might be one would you want to do that and i said sure and so that's how that came about so just sort of a uh putting out that i was interested in doing a car thing and then a car thing becoming available to do well, yeah for the listener uh for a second which is, has become a f- pretty prominent graphic novel publisher at this point yeah i mean it, uh, they, it was- they've been operating for a Oh, yeah. Uh, They've been operating for a little bit, as I've noticed by finding used copies of their books in my local store. But it feels like they've come to prominence and really hit a stride recently. Yeah, they did. Um, They they started about, I guess, maybe 15 years ago. They started the same time as as graphics are pretty close to it. And they had some of the best books, but very few of them sold as well as the quality of the books meant they should have sold. You know, they did Cyril Pedrosa's Three Shadows which is just one of the finest books ever. And it, it sold not much. You know, they did Louis Trondheim's Bourbon Island and it sold not much. Just tons of these great books and they just were not really finding their stride. They did American Born Chinese was their first big one. I think that's the one that carried the line for a really long time. But yeah, with these, with the, the nonfiction comics that they've been, I mean, they, they, they do a lot of good books, but the I think the nonfiction, the science comics, the maker comics, the upcoming history comics, those have proved, I think, a really good seller for them in, in both the bookstore and the library and school markets. And it's a good way of, I think, and this isn't to trivialize those books, but I think it's a good way of maintaining relationships with and books with artists that they want to work with, but who they don't necessarily have a project suited for. So like, I, you know, I pitch my thing and they're like, ah, we can't do this, but you want to do this thing? And I think there are quite a few people that are sort of in their regular artist stable that they want to keep in their, and I say artist as meaning cartoonists as well, uh, who they want to keep in that stable. And I think that these books offer them a way to give people kind of a day job, for lack of a better term. And again, that's not to say that folks aren't emotionally invested in these books that they're making, but mm-hmm. it's. But I do think that that's sort of a, a in addition to the, the the sales function that they feel, I think that's probably a, a logistical function that they feel within that publisher. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of whatever you know, writer artist is working on these books, still being invested in it, even though it's not necessarily something that they pitched. You know, it's yeah. uh, filling out a role in first second lineup. Uh, I think it was Tom Lennon, who's a, a pretty prominent comedian. Yeah, yeah, I writer. know Tom stuff. Yeah. He's, mm-hmm. he's fantastic. I think it was him being interviewed by Paul F. Tompkins once, talked about how writing screenplays that were not necessarily his own projects but were given to him, he treated it like a contractor building a house. Like, you can have all these grand ideas of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this house was like this and had you know, vaulted ceilings, and but at the end of the day... It's not your house. You're you're being paid to build a house for someone else. So yeah. you're going to do the best job you can, but it's for them. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. And I could not, uh, I can't do that. It's, <laughs> uh, I, well, let me rephrase. Nope, I can't rephrase. I can't do that. Um, <laughs> I, uh, 
I, no way to spend that one. There were a lot with with doing pirates was the the only licensed thing that I ever wrote. I've drawn some licensed stuff, but I uh, know I've written some licensed stuff. Oh, me, yeah, never mind. I've done licensed stuff. Pirates was the only one that was a headache, mm-hmm. but. But that was one where I was consistently, I was trying to do that. I was like, this doesn't fit for the franchise. Uh, the problem was I, I had very little guidance or direction with, with what they wanted. I would only get, this doesn't work, you have to do something else. And so that made it mm. kind of hard to, to, to do. And then they were constantly rewriting the fifth movie at the time. And so I'd be like, oh, half, wow. I'd be halfway through an arc. And then they'd say, oh, the movie now has this, you can't use this. So that was... Um, so there were there were things like that. So it was you know it was frustrating, but it was a challenge, and it was something that I could deal with. It's tricky. I tend to it's it's that Appalachian aspect. I don't want to be told what to do. I'll, I'll I will ruthlessly self edit, and I and I and I will take editorial direction, and I'm happy to do it. What I always want to do, I'm never comfortable doing something that I think will make a book worse, and so. I'm always happy to change stuff. I'm not always happy to change stuff to what somebody wants me to change it to, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm like, there's a problem here. You don't like this. Let's find a solution we can both work with. But I can't, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's one of the reasons why I can't, I, I can't do Hollywood stuff beyond initial designs for like early stage stuff because I don't have the emotional fortitude for it. I am just too much in in all of it and if it doesn't go if i feel like the the project isn't going to be the best that it can be then it's really hard for me and different people you know disagree on what makes something the best or what makes it not the best so Mm -hmm. uh, or what makes it better or what makes it worse so as a rule i tend to do work by myself and occasionally work with collaborators with whom i have a really good communication and a lot of honesty and mutual respect for and belief in both parties that we're both trying to achieve that best possible result. Nobody's phoning it in. Anyway, yeah, but I, I think that that Tom Lennon quote is a really good one. But in terms of uh, the Fix a Car book, I'd met you a few times at conventions and had been, become pretty familiar with your work by that point. And so I didn't really know what to expect from like what the Maker's Comics line was supposed to be, like you were being involved in it was the first I heard of it. I didn't either. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, come to find uh, when I bought it, I think I got it from you at a convention. Uh, it's It just feels like one of your books. Well, thank you very much. That it, was the, yeah, the it, hope it's still, I get. It's, <laughs> it's still, it is narratively based, even though it is framed around uh, all of these, you know, very pointed lessons and activities of the literally fixing a car they're still on it it might be the one of the ones that stuck with me in the the emotional moments that it had but it's but uh, yeah. in general i found it uh, quite enjoyable and digestible as someone who you know i grew up in an era when all cars have computers in them i don't yeah. know any of this stuff yeah so I, I found it uh, both uh, informative and enjoyable. Well, thank you, you very much, Matt. It was it, I, I really enjoyed working on that one. Like it was a uh, it was for obvious you know logistical reasons. It was a, it was a challenge because it was you mess up a fact about pirates and nobody like chops their hand off in a fan. Like um, <laughs> so, it, you know, I felt like there was a, a burden of responsibility on it. Plus, trying to make it accessible and make everything make sense you know so much it's like trying to explain comics like so much of cars is is like these eight things interconnect and it's really difficult to talk about them linearly 
And so, you know, it's it, without talking about the whole. And so, and I'd never really found much luck with books uh, explaining things. You know, you just sort of eventually learn it. And so trying to, trying to figure out how one might most successfully convey complex ideas in the simplest way without losing the necessary detail was a real, it was a struggle, but I, I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah, it seems like definitely a balancing act uh, between all of that and, uh, as you alluded to, the legal department at first second <laughs> saying, all right, here's what's safe for children. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of uh, on-screen character deaths, you know, imagined character deaths, but, but you know, just as, as uh, hopefully reminders that, you know, to be careful. Cautionary instructions. Yeah. Yeah, so I assume working with First Second on the Fixer Car book transitioned into, you uh, You mentioned a few minutes ago, their history line of books that is forthcoming. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing one of those, or I did one of those, I guess. It is, it is done. Um, I got the, the hard copies in the mail the other day, so of the, hmm. you know, the advanced copies that they send off from the printer just to... Um, I mean, at this point, I don't think there's anything I could change with it. So I guess it's just <laughs> as a, hey, here's your book, as opposed to a, a proof, you know. And you can probably find it at your local library, or you can buy it. But yeah, it's it's uh, part of their history comics line, and I, I think it's called The Roanoke Colony, America's First Mystery. And uh, and it's a sort of a nonfiction thing of Roanoke. And so what I mentioned about the, the car book, where you're trying to figure out a way to make something that's not particularly linear linear this was exactly that same issue roanoke is mm. it's only a mystery well i mean it's still you know what specifically happened to the colonies is a mystery why it happened to them is not but you have to have a, a larger context of what's going on in england what's going on in america what's going on in the spanish empire what's going on on the border between the the Powhatans and the Chesapeake's and like all these different things because they all play into this narrative. And so my my job with Roanoke, at least so far as I saw it, was to contextualize all of these world and American events in a way that made it to where once we got to the actual disappearance thing, you as a reader have all of the necessary information to know all of the different factors that have come into play at this particular moment in time. And that's something that I, I've i seen with some adult books. Uh, Michael Kupperman's mom wrote, I think, the best book on Roanoke, which I, I mentioned her as Michael Kupperman's mom rather than, than Dr. Karen Kupperman because... You know, there are comics listeners on this podcast and they know Michael Kupperman through his comics. You know, there, but there's there's a handful of, of good adult books. I've never seen a kid book that does anything but talk about specifically Roanoke and what's happening there. And, you know, and brings in England just as the place that people are coming from. But, you know, all of this, in my mind at least, all of this information is necessary to contextualize the event surrounding the disappearance of the Roanoke colonists. So it's that plus butt jokes. <laughs> yeah, as someone who actually enjoyed history classes growing up, mm -hmm. uh, the fact that my understanding of Roanoke is just usually like a six-sentence paragraph that like it was there and it was gone. Yeah, yep. context would be good. Yeah. Let's go with that. It's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because it basically talks about, to me, I mean, pirates come into it. There's a bunch of stuff with it. Um, but it, it's basically, Roanoke is a cautionary tale when one 
looks at short-term profitability versus longevity. And I think that that is, has a message that can easily be carried over to this day and probably will be a message that will be carried over for the next 800 years. And so I, I think that there is a lot to be learned from it. But that, that to me is sort of the big one is that the, the motivation behind the colony in Roanoke in the first place is sort of misguided in that it really is not a sustainable enterprise. And it's curious to me that there are folks who will still make unsustainable enterprises. I say, as somebody who wants to draw comics about kids in the 1850s putting on a play, uh, as I mentioned before, <laughs> but, you know, I don't have a hundred lives resting on whether or not that book sells. So, but yeah, I think it's a, I, hopefully it's an interesting book. Hopefully it's an accessible book and hopefully it makes it to where one can read that and have a really good foundation of that very early stage in uh, American settlement history. I'm looking forward to it. And there's cutaways and, uh, of ships. And I also, I, as far as I know, I have not ever seen a, a recreation illustration of sort of a, a map style thing of of the, the Roanoke colony under Governor Lane. And I, I'm i hoping that's the big takeaway from the book is that people are like, oh, here's the thing. And I mean, a lot of it is conjecture because it has to be conjecture. But I did a lot of research and I, I feel like I can validate any of the decisions or justify any of the decisions that I made in, in coming up with that spread. So hopefully that's one that folks can use and that'll pop up on Pinterest when people are trying to figure out what to do about Roanoke for their... Uh, <laughs> you know, their class project, they got to build a little model or whatever. Yeah. Have that pop up in someone's bibliography. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd just like to call out the fact that you managed to pick or not pick, but, uh, get the colonial American subject that would involve pirates. Somehow you got that. <laughs> well, I kind of, I shoehorn them in there, but it, it, it does. Ah, there's, <laughs> there's like, there's like five piratical tie-ins with Roanoke and I made sure to exhaust all of them. So, yeah. Oh, there's there's always pirates and everything. You, you just have to look for them. That's true. May or may not be on the sea. <laughs> but something that has struck me just as I've become familiar with your work over the last several years, I can't even remember what year we met at this point. It was obviously at Heroes. All the Heroes run together for me, so I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm going to guess like 2012, probably, because okay. I was a little hit or miss in college on being <laughs> able to get to conventions. Anyway, but uh, as I've sort of become familiar with uh, your work and slowly bought almost all of your books at this point. There's a through line that I've noticed where uh, it feels natural based on this conversation that there is always an element of teaching, whether implicit or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like comes across to me, whether it's blatant, like in uh, Fix a Car, that you are, the point of the book is to be taught something, Mm -hmm. or even the the framing device uh, of the Krogan books of the uh the dad using these stories about their ancestors to tell uh teach lessons to his kids is that intentional or is that just sort of ingrained in you as uh you know your desire to teach has been for most of your life it's a little bit of both um i think that there is a there's definitely a desire to share you know teaching suggests that i I'm hesitant to use the term teaching when it comes to the comics that I do because I feel like that one sort of puts a an educational hierarchy between me and the reader and two suggests 
that the reader will benefit from something that they learn, which isn't necessarily the case. So I look at it more as sharing. Like I really, I get incredibly enthusiastic about sharing interesting facts that I've found or something about this particular person or that particular person or this book or that book. And I get, I get so excited about it. And I, I know that if someone had shared this with me, which is oftentimes how I find it in the first place, then I would have been over the moon. And so I really want to share that with other people to give them that opportunity. Should it be something that captures their attention or interest as much as it does me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that has to do with tangibles such as, you know, like I said, a biographical sketch or something along those lines. It also has to do with intangibles, things that, you know, lessons that I think are important to be carried across. And most of the time, those tend to fall into the historical category. And most of the time they tend to fall into the, you know, the things aren't that different category in that I, I want to kind of showcase something that existed in the past that highlights something that exists now, you know, whether yeah, that is an element of human condition. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there's, there's sort of two things that historical fiction and historical essay does well. And one of them is that it is that, seeing that Socrates is complaining about how kids today don't respect their elders and wear dumb pants. And so you have, on the one hand, you have that, that, that eternal human condition that never changes. And we can find our humanity in looking at these, these earlier things. And the other is to highlight the differences. And I think Mad Men did an especially good job of this. Like one of my favorite bits, well, there's a couple of them, but like one of them is, you know, they go out on a picnic and they're eating there. They've got paper plates and things like that. And when they're done, you know, they're in a like a public park. He shakes out the the tablecloth or the picnic blanket, and all the paper plates and cups are just left in the park, and they drive off. And that's something, you know, my mom was like, everybody did that. That was a thing that oh you did gosh. back then. It wasn't it wasn't considered weird or thing. You know, that's what park employees would do is pick up that stuff. And or something the, about all the time I've spent in the service industry makes more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, but I think, but you know, the, but Mad Men would do that, you know, pretty frequently, at least in the early seasons where they would highlight things that we would consider absurd in the past. That's one of the things I love about both the book and the movie of, of gangs of New York is that real highlighting of the absurdity of difference, even while that absurdity of difference highlights the, universality of that type of thing still being done just in a different arena anyway so that's that's the type of stuff uh lesson wise you know so far as you can tell it that i like to try and convey just because i'm real interested in it and then other than that it's just it's just sharing things that i think are interesting or that might uplift people or turn them on to something that they don't already know there's a I don't know if you ever met him at Heroes. He used to be a frequent attendee when he lived in North Carolina. Dr. Eric Newsom is a, a media scholar at the University of Central Missouri, and he he is that to me oftentimes. Like he'll reach out and share something that we have very very similar interests mm-hmm. in an absurd number of arenas. And so every once in a while, I'll you know I'll I'll reach out to him and I'll and it's it's really interesting because he he has the same interests as me, but he's like five years ahead in <laughs> tracking them all down. So I'll reach out and I'll be like, Eric, Eric, did you know there are spaghetti swashbucklers? Like the same guys who were making the spaghetti westerns were making pirate movies. And he's like, I've collected all of them. I'll send you a box. Um, Wait, were they making and, those at the same time? Yeah. 
with the same people like the you know uh oh what's his name who's django and uh and uh my name is nobody terrence terrence hill is in some of them and bud spencer and like it's uh mel ferrer is in them it, yeah it's it's crazy it's it's much easier to see the budgetary constraints um because whereas they lend themselves well to the western you know like the, the ships are just clearly like power boats with mass put on them they don't even bother to put sails on them <laughs> they're just like zipping them around but you know they're they're kind of but i i just use that as an example to uh of the type of thing and so eric will you know i'll ask about you know appalachian folklore studies or westerns or things like that and he'll he'll be like you need to watch slash read slash listen to this 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 or this and it's always huge for me and it just elates me and i know there are a few folks who follow my social media stuff for that reason because i'll share things that they otherwise might miss and they get excited about that Mm -hmm. and as long as i can sort of serve that function i'm i'm really happy well, and in terms of um, you not wanting to think of it necessarily as teaching due to the sort of implicit educational hierarchy that we associate with that with that word, I think a lot of that is only borne out in intention. And because so obviously your intention is to share and to share a passion specifically, I think that comes across in the books. And the only way that that could be taken as he, I, I am gifting you information, oh lowly person. <laughs> Is if someone went into it with that expectation, because that that sharing is a two-way street. And when Mm -hmm. you open a book, you are opening a contract with whoever wrote that book to say, I'm open to whatever you're about to tell me. Yeah, I think that's I I think that's fair. That's a fair way of looking at it. But yeah, I I just uh, that that is sort of my foremost. That's always really foremost in my mind when I'm working on a project is does this allow me to share X, Y, Z? Like, I don't want it to just be, am I sharing my craft? I want people to walk away with something beyond that, that exists beyond what I brought to the table, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I bring something to the table with the way that I do the comic and my execution of it and how, or, or drawing or essay or whatever it might be. But whatever people take from that, I want that to have nothing to do with the comic. Like, I don't want them, I don't want them leaving being like, Oh, that was really nicely drawn. I want them leaving thinking I didn't know this and now I do. And I'm glad that I know that. Or as vehicle for some kind of institutional exactly, knowledge yeah, or yeah. human condition. That's a really, yeah. Vehicle. That's a really good way of looking at it. We're not necessarily good. That's a really good way of articulating the way that I look at it. The sort of teachings or sharing rather tie in with sort of my, through line that I was thinking of as a way to wrap up. So I don't know if there's any other thoughts you have to share in particular. No, I think I'm good. And it, I, I didn't get much sleep last night cause we've got a cat that likes to meow early in the morning. Um, oh, no. it's probably a good time to, uh, to wrap it up. And I really appreciate your giving me the opportunity to do so, Matt. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. I've been wanting to chat for a while. Well, wonderful. Just, well, I hope yeah. we can do it again sometime and, uh, thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who listened. And I'll be sharing links to Chris's uh, websites and social medias and Patreon in the description below. I suggest you give all of those things a look. And before we get out of here, I did uh, intentionally try to avoid uh, all of the various things going on in the world at the moment that we're all aware of. But uh, before we get out of here, I did want to give a word of encouragement to everyone to, you know, add to the voices of we can and will get through all the strange and scary things happening and especially give a big, big thanks to any essential workers or medical people or anyone who 
is actively not able to stay home right now. So uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this, thank you very much for everything you're doing. And uh, absolutely. Thank you all so much. All right. And with that, I'll do my little uh, small business shtick and we'll get out of here. As always, Makers Cast is brought to you by Music City Makers, a creative co-op in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where we make what we love and hope you love what we make. We make screen printed t-shirts of various designs. I have some uh, mini books of short fiction up on the store. And maybe there's something new since the last time you looked. So check the Etsy link below or the Gumroad for PDF versions of those books. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you know, why not do us a favor and share it around, like it, subscribe, or all those other things you know how to do on the internet. Thank you very much.